Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 15, Fueling the Flames of Frisian Freedom. Friesland was an autonomous anomaly in Europe, free from the feudal obligations that had so deeply entrenched themselves in societies everywhere else. For years, the Frisians just rocked along, doing their own thing, which generally involved something to do with a cow. We have largely avoided talking about them for most of this series, but now is the time in our journey through the history of the Netherlands to look at exactly what the Frisians were doing in the 1300s that was not cow-related. Put simply, for the first 44 years of the 14th century, forces and factions fought and feuded in Friesland, fueling the flames of fearless Frisian freedom fighters. In 1345, Frisian farmers and fishermen on the eastern side of the Zouder Zee would meet and defeat the Count of Holland in battle at a town called Starforden in an event that would unite people in East Friesland and ensure that the autonomy that they enjoyed, known as Friese Freiheit, Frisian freedom, would continue for another 150 years. For a very long time, Frisia and its many different people had enjoyed a unique position within the Holy Roman Empire. Through groundwork, Laid by Charlemagne in the 9th century, Frisians had a different social structure than the rest of the lowlands and indeed Europe. After the Franks had defeated the Frisians in the 780s, they were said to have been granted a charter by the Frankish king, Charlemagne. Quote, By royal authority we, Charlemagne, have granted that they, the Frisians, shall remain free with all their progeny, born and yet to be born, in perpetuity, and be fully absolved from personal servitude. We also decree that no one will rule them, except if this happens by their own volition or consent. End quote. Cards on the table. The words from that charter that I just read out first appeared in the 15th century, and are almost certainly fake. However, even the fabrication of such a statement reinforces that liberties granted by Charlemagne were very real in the minds of Frisians. Because of this idea, they for centuries paid homage only to Charlemagne and to his successors. Something called the Lex Frisionum had also been written up, which codified law across Frisia. This served to further secure a sense of autonomy from feudal servitude across the wider region. Considering that for the 500 years that followed Charlemagne, whoever was the emperor often had too much on his plate to worry about the most far-flung swamplands of his domains, this left the Frisians to pretty much do what they wanted. Their unique situation was then reaffirmed by the Dutch Holy Roman Emperor slash anti-king, William II, whom we've spoken about, after Frisians had helped him in the siege of Aachen in 1248. What was enjoyed in Friesland was the Frisian freedom. 
Frisian freedom was a recognized thing at the time. A guy called Bartholomewus Anglicus, or Bartholomew the Englishman, writing around 1240, said of the Frisians that they, quote, be free and not subject to lordship of other nations and put them in peril of death by cause of freedom. And they had liefer, liefer he means preferably, die than be under the yoke of thraldom. Therefore they forsake dignity of knighthood and suffer none to rise and to be greater among them under the title of knighthood. But they be subject to judges that they chose of themselves from year to year, which rule the community among them. End quote. Another chronicle, the Kedam Nuratio, also from the 13th century, says of them that, quote, they are free men and released from any yoke of servitude or anyone's oppressive rule, end quote. With such a cultural trend, with freedom from the yoke of thraldom, the best name for our up-and-coming heavy metal band that we can think of, the feudal manorial system was repudiated in Friesland. So there were not local lords of the lower nobility ruling local areas from castles or from big manors, as was the case everywhere else. There was also not a knighthood, so no pompous, armor-clad big heads swinging their big, flashy swords around from atop horseback. And there was no count, no duke or prince. Of course, Frisians were surrounded by princes, there were many attempts by the Counts of Holland, the Bishops of Utrecht, and the Counts of Helders to bring swaths of Friesland under their sway over time. Some of these were successful, as we saw with West Friesland. Many were not. In their dealings with these territorial lords, Frisians always clung on to their Charlemagne-given rights and freedoms. Frisian freedom. The vacuum that resulted from the absence of a central ruler was filled by a system of varied local governance. In fact, even though the idea of Frisian freedom existed, there seems not to have been any real attempt to establish a unified, centrally governed Frisian state. By the start of the 1300s, Frisia was actually many different states made up of regions and towns spread across the Frisian North Sea coast, including parts of northern Germany and Denmark today. Each state within this wider concept would have had its own variation of a council or assembly, and every so often they would hold an election for municipal magistrates to represent what would later become known as the Seven Sea Lands of Frisia. In these elections, landowners could elect people to the position of Redjeva, the Redjevers would become the representatives of their province, and as such would attend the closest thing that Frisia had to a unified body, the Opstalboom League, which we've touched upon briefly a fair few episodes back now. Since the 1100s, the Opstalboom League would meet, if not annually, then fairly often, always on the Tuesday after Pentecost in a town called Oric. Present would be an assembly of these elected Redjevers, bringing together the represented interests of the seven sea provinces and of the 30 different Frisian states. At this assembly, matters could be discussed, conflicts arbitrated, or issues settled. The Redjevers, or as they were also called consuls, had judicial power, 
which was one of the most defining things about Frisian freedom, and which really separated Frisians the most from people in Holland, Flanders, Brabant, and other fiefdoms of the lowlands. In all of those places, only the formation of towns and city rights had allowed for courts of justice to become a reliable thing. Outside of places with city rights, justice belonged to the rule of the territorial lord. Well, in practice, Friesland didn't have a territorial lord, but they did manage to build a magistrate system that was somewhat democratic. So, this all probably sounds bloody perfect. What a paradise. Here at last, in the misery of the 14th century, we find a region where everything is just la-dee-da. Well, not exactly. There was still a power structure, of course, in Frisia, whereby wealth and land ownership could propel you into a greater position of influence, which you could then use to maintain and keep increasing your wealth and power. The vote in the elections for Redjavers was dependent on blocks of property. One block would be one vote. However, it meant that really wealthy landowners would have more votes as they had more blocks of land. The cities had their own town council or their own alderman systems, and in the magistrate elections, cities would get a certain number of votes. As a result of this, by the 14th century, men known as Hedlingen had risen above the rest in many of the states. They were wealthy men, either farmers or landowning merchants or otherwise, who had used their footholds on local power to gain more wealth and more power. The prominence of Hedlingen began to drive a wedge between them and the other classes of Frisian society, as non-feudal as that society was. Throw the Counts of Holland into that kind of division, and you start to get a lot of friction. Frisiaction. Frisia, Frisiaction. Anyway, of all of Frisia, this sprawling, loosely connected set of lands that did not have a sense of unity... The part that we really care about in this episode is the part that makes up today's modern Dutch provinces of Friesland and parts of Nord Holland, the westernmost bit of wider Frisia. These lands were separated in two by the giant storms we spoke about in a previous episode, which created the vast inland sea known as the Zuider Zee, dividing it into so-called West Friesland and East Friesland. The latter, East Friesland, is where the action in this episode mainly takes place. It shouldn't be too confusing. When we say Friesland from now on, we mean East Friesland, which is actually in the west of Frisia. Got it? Moving on. Wait, it actually gets better. We mentioned earlier how Friesland was divided into many smaller states. At this time, the beginning of the 14th century, the lands in our part of Friesland were divided into three parts, Westergo, Ostergo, and Estellingwerfen, which at this time was not actually a part of Friesland, so will not be mentioned again. Westergo and Ostergo were themselves divided into smaller administrative units. If you'd asked someone at the time where they were from, they'd probably have said in a really strange accent something like Fronikere or Idaderadel. If you're looking for inspiration for Tolkien-esque names, go to Friesland in the 1300s. 
There wasn't yet a sense of a united Friesland, even though the people had a common language and ethnic heritage connected with Frisian freedom. Actually, on that common language, back then there would have been dialectic differences, but even to this day, three variants of Fries are still spoken. It's a real language spoken by real people in the Netherlands and northern Germany. In fact, it is worth pointing out that Frisian is the most closely related language in the world to the one which I am trying my best not to mangle right now, English. Frisian and English are most definitely different languages, don't get me wrong. Frisian sounds a bit to us like a concussed Scot with a speech impediment on a bender, or as they would more likely call it, a standard Tuesday night. But there are still examples of how close the languages are. For example, the sentence, bread and butter and green cheese is good English and good Fries, is a sentence often used to depict their similarity, as apparently you say bread, butter, and green cheese in basically the same way. Green cheese sounds bloody disgusting, by the way. What are you thinking, Friesland? But even disregarding that, the closest relative to the English language. We bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Okay, well, Frisian. We probably should have given this segment a different name. We've seen how the Counts of Holland for centuries had coveted fought for, and slowly set about conquering West Friesland. When the subjugation of this region had been achieved in the 1280s by Floris V, his thirst for more land and power had not become sated, but instead was then immediately projected across the water towards the rest of Friesland. Inside Friesland, different parties, including those prominent Hedlingen, align themselves in either an anti-Holland or a pro-Holland stance, according to their specific interests. In 1292, Floris managed to convince the citizens of Starforden, a town in Westergo, to recognise him as their princely count. Starforden's strategic position on the coast meant that its trading interests were now aligning more with those of the growing power to its south, Holland. As we know, these were interesting times for Holland, as in 1296, Floris was then kidnapped and murdered and succeeded by his son, John. Taking advantage of this transitional phase of power, an anti-Holland faction in Westergo, at the urging of the Bishop of Utrecht, travelled over to West Friesland and burnt down a bunch of fortresses and castles there. So while Westergo was plagued by division and lashing out, Ostergo did its best to let the comital powers in Holland know that they had nothing to do with this or any other anti-Holland attack. Again, there was no real Frisian unity, just a general Frisian desire to remain free. John didn't last long, dying three years into his reign as Count of Holland at age 15, and that is when the Avens, one of those families we have been going on about, took control under John II. His eldest son died fighting for the French in the Battle of the Golden Spurs. His second son was a priest who died a year after that. Both terrible tactics for continuing the family line. And John himself died a year after that, leaving his third son, William III, how appropriate, as Count of Holland and Zeeland and Hanover. William III continued pushing his claim for Friesland, but did so mostly by skillful diplomacy. And by skillful diplomacy, we mean he 
did things like handed out noble titles and positions to make allies in Westergo, trying to introduce feudalism. He also gave out loans of money because, you know, money makes friends. William III also engaged in a bit of good old-fashioned privateering, allowing Hollandic vessels on the Zuiderzee to plunder goods from Frisian ships, and in so doing managed to make himself look threatening enough without ever actually having to resort to full-on war. He did this well enough that in 1310 he managed to get recognition as Count from the people of Westergo. They did, however, ensure that the agreement maintained the inviolability of some of the rights that they had held for centuries. The root of the dispute, however, was definitely there. Coming into the 1320s, the internal jostling which we touched upon earlier erupted in a rebellion in that area against Holland and anybody who supported its count. The rebellion saw a number of people kicked out of Friesland, an affront to the honour of the count. Several naval encounters ensued between Holland and Frisian ships. However, William III's methods were more aligned with diplomacy. Eventually, the pressure drew delegates from Starforden to come forth and open negotiations with him. They eventually reached an agreement in which Westergo and Starforder agreed on some concessions to William III and in 1328 again recognized him as Count. This became a stalemate and would remain the situation for the next decade or so, until in 1337, William III died. The anti-Holland factions in Westergo used this opportunity to disregard the previous agreement and push again for the maintenance of Frisian freedom. Speaking of using opportunities, we're going to take this one for an ad break. See you on the other side. With the death of William III, so too died his somewhat more diplomatic approach taken towards Friesland. The new Count of Holland, Zeeland and Hanno, a 30-year-old man called, wait for it, William IV, was very much a case of the apple falling pretty far from the tree, becoming incredibly violent, and then turning into a nut. Remembering that this was a time when the way to cement relationships between territories was to marry your children off to powerful people's children. William III had done an extremely good job at this, with one of his daughters being married to the King of England, Edward III, and another to the Emperor, Louis the Bavarian. His son, the new Count of Holland, William IV, had also been married well, becoming the first husband of a powerful woman we met last week, Joanna, who would become the later Duchess of Brabant. So the Aven family were very well connected indeed. William IV was born into such a world. His Jew was to become a prince and he lived in an age of chivalric honour and exploits. He cut the image of a medieval warrior prince, a violent knight of Christendom who would make his point by the point of his sword rather than by the logic of his discussion. Contrast that with the Frisians who... Remembering those words by Bartholomew the Englishman, forsook the dignity of knighthood and suffered none to rise and be greater among them, you can see how their relationship is going to be a really healthy one. William IV's life was basically 
like a teenage boy's idea of what a knight's life would be like. He was sort of like the Russell Crowe of the 1300s, and he went fighting around the world. His life revolved around going to exotic places, meeting interesting people, and more than occasionally butchering them and their families. He was also, however, an extremely pious man, as was the fashion of his time. And he went on various crusades around Europe, attacking any of the supposed enemies of Christendom, like, and no doubt you're thinking this, the pagan Lithuanians. He was also sent by his father at the head of a huge fleet to Spain, where he met up with the King of Spain and helped him fight against Muslim Arabs and Moors. To quote one of our favourite sources, The General History of the Netherlands by Edward Grimestone, which, although prone to exaggeration, has some wonderfully flowery language, he helped lay siege to Granada, quote, the which they battered and in the end took by assault, putting all to the sword that would not be baptised and embraced the faith of Jesus Christ. Then passing farther into the country, they spoiled and burnt all they encountered. End quote. After all this spoiling and burning in the name of Jesus Christ and making himself rich with plunder, he went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem before returning to the Low Countries and going off to Flanders to meet his brother-in-law, Edward III, to whom he offered his services in his conflicts with the French. We imagine that William IV was probably the only person who was really disappointed when the French and English mediated their problems with the Truce of Espletchen and resolved to delay their battle for five years. Not getting the fight that he craved, he went off to the administrative centre of Holland, The Hague, and basically indulged himself in the next best thing, by manufacturing fighting in tournaments that he frequently held. But even all this could not sate his desire to fight, and so he went off to the northeast again, joining once more with the Teutonic Order to violently convert more infidel Lithuanians, Livonians, and Russians into the fold of Jesus, and to steal a bunch of their stuff too. So that should give you the general character of William. He doesn't need much incentive to go off and fight someone. In January 1344, the internal divisions in Friesland between pro and anti-Holland factions that had remained simmering for the past decade or so, once more boiled over into violence. In Starforden, a pro-Holland partisan was murdered, raising the ire of William, who, it seems, demanded hostages from both sides of the disagreement to come and guarantee against any increase of violent repercussions. This may have worked for the time being, but upon the release of these hostages six months later, the instability instantly returned, and William decided that the time had come for a new military adventure, this time one much closer to home, in Friesland. William didn't launch an invasion immediately, but instead at the end of 1344 went on a tour through parts of Friesland, as he was met by different representatives from different local government bodies, he let his wrath be known, as well as his willingness to subject them all to its full glory. He also began making preparations for war, which meant grabbing supplies, building ships, and raising money to pay soldiers. One of the ways he did this was by visiting Frisian cloisters and monasteries, which were in his territory, such as one on the island of Marken, which was 
controlled by a well-established Primostratensian order based at the Mariangada Cloister in Ostago. These raids happened all over West Friesland. William treated it like an enemy territory, his troops taking basically everything which wasn't tied down, much to the dismay of the Frisian monks there. He claimed that he was doing this to ensure the good behaviour of people in Friesland, but really, it just looked like he was stealing a lot of cows from a bunch of defenceless monks. This was an affront not only to the Frisian sensibilities and their love of cows, but also to their love of God. Monasteries may have been raided during wars when they belonged to the enemy, but these were monasteries in his territories, ostensibly under his law, and so should have been also under his protection. But no, he took their cows. But also he had violated the etiquette of respecting the holy sanctity of places like cloisters. In doing this, he invited the wrath of their saints upon himself. He exemplifies one of the amazing contradictions of the Middle Ages, that someone could justify going out and killing pagans in the name of Christ, but then when it suited him to go and desecrate the institutions of the religion for which he fought. Even more importantly, that monastery on Marken which he had raided had been controlled by people in Ostago, which had always maintained for years that they had nothing to do with the conflicts between Holland and Westergo. William basically dragged Ostergo into the conflict, but on the side of his enemies. In doing this, he unwittingly laid the groundwork for Westergo and Ostergo to now unite with a common cause. Delegations were sent to William from Ostago and Westergo, making pleas and proclamations to try to sway him from the course of war. These all fell on deaf ears. Even the last-minute attempts to grant him extreme concessions were ignored. These concessions were completely designed to assure William that he really was a great prince. They said they would give him certain taxes, like on beer, and certain fishing rights, as well as allow him to build fortresses in Friesland, which was a huge deal, as Frisian law had not allowed this for a long time. There was just one concession that the two parties could not agree on. Power in Friesland, like in any fiefdom, really lay in the right to make appointments of administrators, such as judges, at a provincial level. William wanted that right, the right to be able to turn Friesland into the kind of feudal society that it had simply never been. On this point, however, the Frisians would not bend. Herein lay the essence of Frisian freedom, and though they would give other concessions, even some which would undermine their dignity, they would not budge on this point. For instance, they even offered William that they could all take part in a ceremony where he could come to Friesland and in front of an assembled population would be lifted up on a shield by four Frisian nobles and everybody would chant, Here is the Lord of Friesland. Literally, this they would do, but they would not allow him to take away their ancient right of self-determination, a right they had enjoyed since the time of Charlemagne. They were kind of like, Meatloaf. They would do anything for the Count of Holland, but they won't do that.
On a personal note, we at the history of the Netherlands would be stoked to be lifted up on a shield by anyone, especially if they want to chant that we are the lords of Friesland. So if you ever find yourself in Amsterdam looking for something to do, hit us up on Twitter at History of NL. We can arrange this. Definitely. I've got a shield. William, though, he just wasn't as easygoing as us, and he refused. Given his love of fighting around the world, what that now meant is that war it would be. On June 15, 1345, citizens from Ostago and Westago came together in Leuven. It is from an account of this meeting laid out in the Chronicle from the St. Adolphus Abbey in Starforden that the idea of a Frisian Patria Nostra, a fatherland, is first written down. It was at this point, forced by the threats of Holland, that the prospect of a properly united Friesland was put on the table. They knew they would have to fight together if their freedom was to remain intact. The Frisians knew that the most likely place for William to arrive there was at the pro-Holland town of Starforden. So they occupied the town and they fortified themselves in the St. Adolphus Abbey. There they waited. They were made to wait a while, actually, as William became distracted by some insults that had been hurled his way by the Bishop of Utrecht. So he headed south, put together a huge army consisting of nobles from his domains and also from Utrecht, but who were disenchanted with the bishop's rule, and went and met the bishop's men in battle, twice, defeating them both times. He forced them to flee behind Utrecht's formidable city walls. For six weeks, William IV besieged Utrecht, eventually agreeing to pull up stumps but only when 500 of the leading citizens appeared before him bareheaded and barefooted and begged for his mercy. This being done, William could now swagger back north and deal with the Frisians, chock full of confidence. It is thought that he took between twelve and 15,000 men to invade Friesland, and he did this on September 26th 1345. He split his forces into two, with the advanced leading party led by him and the other by his uncle, Jan van Beaumont. Splitting up his forces is what we can call Willy Big Mistake Number One. These troops, which included many knights, were loaded onto ships at Enkhuizen, but due to a lack of space, they had to leave their horses behind. Heavily armoured knights without horses kind of walk around a battlefield like C-3PO. And this is what we can call Willy Big Mistake number two. The idea was that the two prongs of the army would engulf Starforden in a pince of movement to crush the town. But upon disembarkation just north, William probably got a bit too excited being back doing what he loved best and he didn't wait for his uncle with the second army to land. Instead, he took 500 of his C-3PO knights and went straight to the burning villages and killing cows part of his plan. If there's one way to really invigorate the fury and the force of Frisian fishermen and farmers focused against you, it's by killing their cows. His small advance force was set upon by enraged Frisians streaming out of their headquarters in the abbey who chased him down, horseless as he was 
and crushed his army, killing William in the process. William IV might have been able to defeat Moors and Arabs and Lithuanians in his time fighting around the world, but he was ultimately futile against furious Frisian farmers and fishermen. So having dealt with part of the invading army, these defenders could now turn around and deal with the other. Uncle Jan's force was now alone, and they became confronted on their way into Starforden by these now emboldened Frisian freedom fighters. The Hollandic army collapsed and made a disorderly retreat, each man now seeking to get back to the ships before they too were caught and slaughtered. Hundreds of them died in the process, and it was only a sad remnant of the fleet that had left which returned to Amsterdam a few days later, having lost countless dead, and also now just being generally countless. If this story sounds familiar to you, by the way, it is because it's not the first time we have seen an army from Holland limp back after fighting Frisians, having lost their prince in the process. This is a testament to how very strong the will was of people in Friesland to consistently hang on to the sense of liberty that they alone possessed. It is also not the first time in this series that we have seen an army of commoners band together and defeat an army of knights, as it happened in the Battle of the Golden Spurs. Although the similarities between these two cases do hearken to the spirit of the times, to the fact that people across the lowlands were really showing a willingness to stand up and fight for themselves, Friesland does still truly remain somewhat exceptional. They were not fighting for something new, as the craft workers in Flanders had been, but for the maintenance of something that they truly believed had always been theirs. Freedom from the rule of a prince, sovereign rights, to their own systems of justice. The death of William IV was monumental for the history of the Netherlands, mainly because he died without an heir. The Aven dynasty, that had been doing so well, found themselves without a male successor. They'd managed to establish themselves as one of the leading families in the Lowlands during their competition with their cousins, the Dampiers, and with their tactical marriages with the ruling heads of Europe. But in the end, None of that mattered, because William IV, perhaps blinded by the glory of warfare, forgot that the most important duty of any prince was to ensure that he had an heir at the time of his death. He had had one son, but he had died young, because this was also the 1300s, and you had to take into account that sort of thing happening. All of a sudden, though, that pitiful return of the shattered fleet represented the fact that Holland, Zeeland, and Hanno, some of the most powerful areas of the Lowlands, were now up for grabs for whichever of William's powerful in-laws wanted them the most. This kicked off a period which, if we'd followed the general chronology given in almost every book on Dutch history we've read, would have been the main topic of this episode, a series of civil wars in Holland known as the Hook and Cod Wars which are going to rage in and out for the next century or so. We even started writing this episode to be about the Hook and Cod Wars. The thing is, the underlying issues that will fuel those wars are pretty much the same as what we saw cause the eruption of violence in Flanders that we've covered 
pretty extensively. The forces of urbanization, growing trade wealth, and the demand of town citizens for rights had spread into the northern lowlands. Different groups and factions had emerged. These would ally themselves with whatever other parties they saw as sharing their interests. We didn't want to spend an entire episode on repeating much of the same, but with different names and places. Suffice it to say that now with William IV's death without an heir, his sister Margaret, the one married to the emperor, would inherit his titles and begin a power-sharing system with their son, whom they had creatively named also William. Mother and child would shortly come to blows thereafter, and those different factions that had formed in Holland, known as the Hooks and the Cods, would line up varyingly behind them. Out of it all, the House of Wittelsbach would emerge as the rulers of Holland and Zeeland and Hanau. There, that was the first of the Hook and Cod Wars. It was better as a paragraph than an entire episode. Don't you agree? Julian agrees. Truth is, we found the plight of the Frisians much more interesting and pertinent for the spirit of rebellion that had now evidently begun to emerge across the lowlands. Not long after the Friso-Hollandic War, the Black Death happened, and we all know the social consequences of that. By the second half of the 14th century, Friesland United had then also erupted into its own civil war. Their fancy faction names were the Fettkopers and the Schieringers. Over the following 150 years, despite this factionalism, and although the Hedlingen, those chief men in Friesland, had continued to garner more and more of power for themselves and bigger landowners came more to the fore, Friesland would still remain free from feudalism. Until the end of the 15th century, the battle at Starforden was the point when their resolve was most tested and they came out on top. Coins have been found that were minted shortly after the battle, which have the writing on them, Moneta Frisi Libertatis, Coins of Frisian Freedom. In fact, for years afterwards, the anniversary of the battle would be commemorated by a pilgrimage where people carried statues of Mary to the St. Adolphus Monastery, which the Frisians had made their base. This continued even after the monastery was abandoned by monks due to, guess what, flooding in the 1400s, and people could only wait out to look at it at low tide. The tradition was stopped in the early 1500s by Charles V, but revived during the Second World War in a somewhat dubious and Nazi-linked ceremony that nobody wants to remember these days. In 1951, a rock was placed on a cliff, Yes, I know you're thinking, what the hell is a cliff doing in the Netherlands? But it's a very small cliff. And it was the place erroneously thought to have been the site of the battle. But the rock had engraved in it text in the language of Fries. It says, Liefer a slave. Now we invite any and all of our Frisian listeners to send in a recording of how you'd actually pronounce that, as well as a berating for how poorly I did. But, you know... I can barely speak Dutch, let alone Frisian. The English translation, though, is better dead than a slave. This episode was based massively on two articles by historian Hans Moll, which we read and tried vainly to convince our Dutch teacher was suitable homework for the curriculum. 
We'll link to those articles, as well as other sources we used on our website. This episode was made possible by the generous help of our Patreon subscribers, of which we got three new ones this week. Oh yeah. Big thanks to our mate Godda, James Gotta Love It, who listens to our show to try to better understand what his Dutch mum is talking about when she references the antagonism between weavers and fullers in everyday life. Also a big thanks to Clay Batley, or Potters, as his Australian friends would call him if he had Australian friends. Maybe he does, maybe they call him that. He also generously donated $3 per episode, so he is definitely our friend. And you know what that means. We're going to say his name three times. Clay Batley. Clay Batley. Clay Batley. Last but not least, big ups to the Chewing Mountain, Jan Kalvenberg. Thanks, Chewy. Your support means the world to us. If you are enjoying the show and want us to be able to keep on putting in the time and effort we are giving it right now, becoming a supporter on Patreon is the way to do that. For a buck a show, you can get an ad-free version of each episode, which we think is a really good deal. Another thing which helps us dramatically are reviews on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you use. Whatever, we're not picky. Our hobby is reading overwhelmingly positive things that people write about us on the internet. So go ahead, make our hobby your passion. We are extraordinarily busy at the moment with this project, as well as creating an artwork for the Amsterdam Light Festival Edition 8, which begins in November. If you are going to be in Amsterdam between November 28th, 2019 and January 19th, 2020, check out the Amsterdam Light Festival and look out for the piece made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio and Nomad Tinker House. I'll give you a hint about which one it'll be. It's the only one that has something to do with Amsterdam history. On top of that, we also design and give tours. And because of tour commitments, we're going to be a week late with the next episode. We're really sorry about that. But if you don't like it, Patreon. On that note, we are curious to see if there is any interest in History of the Netherlands tours. If that's something which you'd be keen in doing or just want to know more about, please write to us on Twitter, email, or through the contact page on our website, republicofamsterdamradio.com. Let us know what you feel about it. And you never know, maybe we can start working towards something like that. That's it for today. Until the next episode, where we are going to gut you like a fish. Totso. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.